Welcome. Thank you for joining the conversation. I'm your host, Randy Hugh, Assistant Director of Collection Development and Curator of Political, Cultural, and Social Movement Collections at Emory University's Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library. And you're listening to the podcast series, Atlanta Intersections. June 12 is Record Store Day, and last year a defining moment in Atlanta's punk history took place in the city's Little Five Points neighborhood. There, in the parking lot behind the Star Bar, the past, present, and future of Atlanta's punk scene gathered to celebrate the release of Neon Christ Deluxe reissue 1984, with performances by Neon Christ, Gigi King, and Upchuck. The show produced what local music writer Chad Radford called, quote, a punk rock catharsis after four years of intense socio-political tumult brought to a head by the pandemic, unquote. Join me today for part two of my conversation with William Duvall and Randy Duto of Neon Christ, the legendary Atlanta hardcore band. William, Randy, Jimmy Deemer, and Danny Langford formed Neon Christ in 1983. The band played their first show on December 31st, 1983, and soon began sharing the stage with hardcore luminaries such as the Dead Kennedys, Dirty Rotten Imbeciles, Circle Jerks, and Corrosion of Conformity. In March 1984, they recorded the Parental Suppression EP, and five months later, they were back in the studio recording four more songs. One of those songs, Ashes to Ashes, appeared on MDC's International Peace War compilation, and that record brought the band's music to a worldwide audience. In 2021, Southern Lord released 1984, a deluxe edition of all the material Neon Christ recorded in 1984. We begin this episode talking about the band's June 1984 tour to promote their 7-inch record. Let's get started. everybody how old y'all were randy how old were y'all when when you did the record in 84 18 i was 18 and Dan- danny was probably 18 right and william were you 16 at that point yeah i was 16 yeah and then mm-hmm. jimmy was 14 mm-hmm. right yep. i mean yep. that's that's yep. extraordinary to think about because coming up next y'all go on tour so you first show in january you record a record and release a record. You record it in March, and then you go on tour in June. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And Jim had Jim had copied all the notes out of Kurt, uh, the singer for DRI's uh, notebook. And, you know, so DRI when they played, they hung out for a while at the Metroplex because they probably had no gig to the next place, so they needed a place to stay for a bit. And so Jim went over there hung out with those guys and copped Kurt's notebook, man, and just started hand copying every phone number in there and all the addresses. And so he walked away, 14-year-old kid walked away with a freaking Rolodex of information that he hand copied, and then he just started getting on the phone and calling people. And the cool thing was our record 
But when we had the record out, that became a bit of a calling card. So people had gotten that, that demo tape that we recorded live in the Metroplex just through the soundboard. The same tape DRI had circulated to different people when they were on their tour ahead of us. But now we had an actual 45 record recorded in an actual studio. You know, and so it was it was like, oh, you know, we're even more legit now. You know, yeah, the cover was copied at Kinko's, photocopied, you know what I mean? And yeah, it's 10 songs jammed onto a 45, you know, but, you know, we're legit, man. <laughs> we have a record. And, you know, but I just, I, I marvel at, at the level of enterprise uh, coming from us as these little kids. Jim and I on that tour couldn't legally drive. So, you know, that's how we were, that's what we were working with. <laughs> Like when I was coming home on the weekends or going to Jimmy's house on the weekends to practice, you know, I would have, you know, a specific time where, you know, Richard or whoever was going to, um, you know, take me back to Young Harris would pick me up. And um, I think we were trying to get on a Sunday afternoon show or something. And I ended up having to leave. Um, I got home and then a couple of days later, I get a letter from William and he was telling me that I needed to work on my PMA. You know, and I was like, what the fuck is PMA? <laughs> And uh positive mental attitude. Yes. <laughs> but like the the thing about it about the letter and I wish that I still had it. He was he was saying, you know, we've 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 got to like commit to this thing 100%. He goes, you know, we're going to book studio time, we're going to put out a record. He said the Deemers were going to loan us a station wagon and their gas card and we were going to go on tour. And all of a sudden, I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I, I never even knew about a record or going on tour. And all of a sudden, that's when it got real, you know. And so we went through the process of getting this record out in June and um, then going on the tour. I don't know. I just I marvel that as, at that as well, you know, because I was an 18-year-old kid, you know, just starting college, you know, and I was into punk rock. I thought we would play some shows and we would have some fun and that would be the extent of it. And these guys had completely different ideas. And, you know, once I gathered that and got with the program, I think it was all systems go for us. Well, and you both made the point that there was a nationwide network, right? We didn't have the Internet or all that, but there was a nationwide hardcore network. And as William pointed out, worldwide with maximum rock and roll. So you could go to a town and like Scott in Raleigh, and you could sleep in his attic, which had all mattresses up there for bands that came through. So you didn't have the internet, but there was a network of people that you were plugged into, in a way. Yeah, there was support. There was support from like-minded young people, like-minded kids, and that was essential. I mean, there, there's no way anything would have worked without that. Um, and Again, I think we have to hearken back to how hated this music was by so many people in authority. The kids that liked it, we felt very much like it was us against the world. And we felt like we were all we had, so we had to support one another. Like, I can't stress that enough. That was really... If you found one person who maybe looked a certain way or had a, a sticker of a certain band stuck onto their denim vest or their jacket or whatever, you instantly knew. I mean, it was beyond secret handshake or any of that stuff. It was just like, 
oh, you're one of us, you know. And because it was so rare, I mean, you could count on one hand the kids who might feel like you in any school across the nation. And so many now adults uh, relay the same story of how they were the only kid in their school. They were the, I mean, we had, I have grown people coming up to me to this day tell me that they got kicked out of their class, kicked out of their school because they had a neon Christ sticker on their notebook, you know, or on the jacket. Like it was outlawed. Now you have kindergartners with green hair and pink hair and all that kind of stuff. In those days, you would get suspended if you showed up to school with anything like that, or if you wore spikes on your shoe, anything that was out of the ordinary in that way, it was not just discouraged, it was, uh, it was, it was banned, you know. So, within that climate, um, you know, I think, I think oppression feeds creativity, you know, and in, in this case, it certainly did, because we not only had to get creative with the music, but we had to, everybody had to get creative with, I say we collectively, like the worldwide we that was trying to um, get our thing on with this new music. We had to figure out how do you distribute the music? How do you play the shows? How do you travel to play the shows? You know, and so we knew, like, I mean, it's almost... You know, I hesitate to make this comparison, but just like in the civil rights times, they had safe houses along the route. So if you were trying to get from one place to another, and they actually had books, you know, the green book of whatever, you know, and, and it gave you all the safe houses you could stay in, all the hotels that would have you as a black person, the gas stations that were okay to use. Well, it was similar in the hardcore times, the early, early hardcore times. You had certain, every town had like uh, the one kid who you that everybody connected through you go to that kid they, they if they if he if he couldn't put you up or she couldn't put you up they'd know somebody who would you know they might be the one putting on the show it, it was all makeshift but again because that was all we had it was you know really kind of rock solid in its way because everybody knew that you were relying on them, you you know everybody knew you were being relied on to provide this or that, yeah. you know. So it it worked out well. Worked out well. I want to share um, a situation that happened in Richmond. You know, we got to town, got to the venue, and they didn't know anything about a show. I mean, there was there was going to be nothing, and uh, so we were pretty discouraged, and we were going to try to figure out what we could do. And uh, so we hopped on our skateboards and we went down to a record store. You know, got to a record store and there was a, uh, a girl with a mohawk and a couple of other guys. And, um, you know, they were like, who are you? We told them we were a band. We were there in town to play, but there wasn't going to be a show. And so we decided to hang out with them for a while. And um, we went back to the club and I guess we were going to leave town, go into the next town. And uh, the girl said if we could find a PA system you know, would you guys think about doing the show? And we said if the venue operators would let it happen. And so her boyfriend was in a band, I think Broken Bones or something maybe. And uh, so they got their PA. And um, in Richmond, everybody had everybody's phone numbers. And so they said, you know, let's, let's get on the horn. Let's start calling everybody. Let them know there's going to be a show. And so not only was there a show, but they got three opening bands and a small crowd there as well. 
And um, at the end of the night, you know, we had all the money in a pot, and um, we had representatives from each of the bands, and we were going to split it up four ways. And uh, the first band got their split, and they threw it back at us and said, you guys are on tour, so why don't you take our money? And then the other two bands followed suit, so we got all the money. So not only did we have a great show, you know, we got paid. I think we even got to stay in a hotel that night and maybe even eat, too, so... And had gas money to get us on to the next town. Well, if it was Richmond, I think we stayed with Dewey at White Cross, I think. That's right. But, you know, all of this happened within a matter of hours. That's what's remarkable. It happened within a matter of hours. And again, pre-internet, pre-smartphone, you know, pre-like, you know, I'm going to just dial up 20 people and send a group text. You know, this was like everybody was working on landlines and and. You know, it was it was all analog. Let's just say, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and it, and yet it happened. You know, it was yeah. That's the kind of thing that would happen. Uh, you know, in in our scene back then, <clears throat> they didn't know us. You know, but you know, we were you know we were all from that set together. You know, and and we looked out for each other. You know, like I think of what cause for alarm and those bands staying at Jimmy Deemer's house. You know, because that's just what we did. Well, no, you you get back from tour and um, some new songs creep into the set, right? The knife that cuts so deep, and I think I think aimless days appeared around then. So you're learning, you know, not you, William, but the rest of the band is learning their instruments and all that. You're coming around, and then all of a sudden, there's some new material coming in. Was that just kind of a natural progression? Again, we're talking a grand total of six months after your first show. Yeah, rapid progression for sure, and um, you know that's that's for a number of reasons. I'm sure looking back, I mean, uh, part of it's a function of age because you're de- you're rapidly developing as a human being um, in that time, adolescence, and then also just uh, you know we were rapidly learning how to be a band, and having played on the road, that certainly is the best. Uh, way to really tighten up a band uh, to show you who you are and what you're made of and uh, and then you know I think our desire to expand our music sonically get away from just the the hyper fast thrash was reflective of a lot of bands desire to expand beyond their beginnings you know, I think it seems looking back like we were all going through uh, a really profound collective consciousness moment between all these kids around the world and all these bands that were forming and breaking up and forming again and forming out of other bands. Like everyone kind of <clears throat> became aware of this music around the same time, started playing, developing the networks, doing all the things, putting out the records. And then a couple of years in, it seems like everyone said, okay, we've made a start, but now I'd like to do something that's more reflective of the totality of my influences, you know? So, you know, uh, especially the bands that had 
real musicians in, in them, you know, bands that were really trying to do something musically. You know, like now I want to reflect my country rock influences or my Black Sabbath influences. Or, so, you know, in that regard, we were, we were going through a similar thing. It's like you're growing up and you want to, you know, <clears throat> you want to show all that you can do. And um, so, yeah, I started, the, the writing started changing a bit. I, uh, yeah, coming up with The Knife That Cut So Deep was, was important because that was a more personal song than any of the others. And it wore its heart on its sleeve more than the others. And um, the reaction that it got was important for me and for us as a band because um, the girls, they really liked that song. They, they, that was when I knew we were onto something different and interesting because it, that, it, that had not happened to that degree up, to, up until then, you know? And so it was nice. And, and, and that record, it came off, uh, when we went in to record it, it made itself into a record. You know what I mean? Like some songs, it's almost like some songs write themselves and some songs record themselves practically. Like it's almost like you don't even have to do much, but just get out of the way. You know, that was one of those. Knife that cuts so deep. As a, as a writer, it came very quickly. And then as a record, it was uh, obvious what had to be done to make it into the record that we would hope to walk out of the studio with. It was just so obvious. There was no quizzing. The whole session for um, the four songs that we did on Labor Day 1984, I think it took four hours. We only booked four hours. You can only afford four hours. So to walk in, to walk in, set up, record four songs in four hours all of which had overdubbing now. Now we're trying to get more studio conscious. Now it's now it is like, oh wow, I can double that part. Oh, you mean I can triple that part? Oh my god. Oh, I can layer parts. So we did all of that stuff in four hours, you know, for the knife cut so deep, the blind patriot, ashes to ashes, and the death they'll give you. So yes, we're talking rapid growth and um you know, within six months, and it continued until the end of the band. It, it just was compounding growth, you know, compounding uh, expansion, uh, and uh, very, very exciting, very exciting. I think what was really cool about that era, too, though, is like when the knife that cuts so deep, um, when we started doing that, I remember getting the lyric sheet. And William having a note saying, you know, I want this played on 96 Rock. And um, and this was a song where I was required to sing. Right. And then, you know, with the backing vocals, you know, with pretty singing, you know, this was completely different. But when we when we put it out there, you know, people didn't squawk. You know, they were just like, oh, that song is great. You know, and as we started introducing these other songs, you know, if it's Aimless Days, um, if it's Graveyard Mist, you know, any of those songs, and nobody ever questioned it. You know, people just had a completely open mind about it. And so, you know, by the time the band ended, our set was so different than when we started. And the same fans were there, and more people had come on board as well. 
you know, and I think that that's a pretty great thing because we know a lot of bands who changed directions and all of a sudden people started raising hell. Like when How We Rock came out and all of a sudden it's just like SSD sucks and it's like, no, you know, and, and people weren't, you know, they weren't allowed to change and they weren't allowed to grow, but we were. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, you know, I, I always remember the the raging debate that took place in Black Flag put out my war. You know, that was a line in the sand for a lot of people. And they just, they, they never went, they never came back to that band. It was like, it was like, oh, I'm, I'm crossing Black Flag off my list. Like, you know, we didn't face as much of that in Atlanta. And, um, yeah, it's, it, I don't know why exactly that would be. Perhaps because the scene grew up around us. And, um, you know, so as we were expanding, literally in real time, the scene was expanding. And so, and, you know, maybe the innocence of it all, the fact that it was all so new for all of us, um, maybe the fact that Atlanta was not as much of a, you know, a town on the radar of everything as, a, as maybe LA and, and certainly, you know, even Boston, you know? Um, but yeah, we were, <clears throat> we were sort of lucky in that respect that <clears throat> we didn't get the kind of extreme negative reaction that other bands who tried to change or expand got. Um, I'm thankful for that. I, I, I don't think I would have cared either way back then, you know, I was really strong headed and just sort of like, you know, we're going to, this is is what's happening and I don't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Like, but, um, but yeah, I mean, people, people dug it now. I mean, part of that is because, you know, the band really, you know, we really, we really put it all, we left it all on the stage, you know, live. We were, we were, you know, we, they could see we were serious, you know, and, um, you know, maybe, maybe that helped. I don't know. But, but, uh, I just wish we had been able to document that newer music at the time. I wish we'd been able to go into the studio like we planned to do. Um, unfortunately that never happened. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for the reaction that our material got as we evolved. This is Labor Day 1984, so you record in March 1984, and then you also record in Labor Day, and one of those four songs was Ashes to Ashes. So most of that stuff didn't get released at the time, but one of the songs, Ashes to Ashes, did get released. Um, where did, where did, how did that end up uh, getting released? Well, we got a, a letter from 
I think it was Dave MDC, Dave from the singer from MDC, who were one of our favorite bands. Um, that first album they put out is just a classic to this day. Um, and uh, Dave was trying to put out a compilation um, called the Peace Compilation. Uh, you know, it was uh, the proceeds were going to go to, uh, I'm sure, some anti-nuclear uh, groups and uh, causes. And um, so this was supposed to be a double album compilation, so pretty ambitious uh, undertaking. And I think the letters, the, the card said something effective like, we were about to go to press with this, and we realized we had no Neon Christ. So could you please send us whatever you've got, you know, that you want to offer up to this, to this company? So, I mean, first of all, we were just so pleased and, and, and you know, blown away that, you know, this was a letter out of the blue from one of our favorite bands, and they, and they acted as though it was essential that we were on this record. You know, that they almost couldn't put out this record unless we were on it. So, I mean, that was just amazing. And then we had these four songs that were newly recorded. So it was perfect timing. And uh, Jim remembers the, there being some debate between the two of us about uh, what song to put on there. And I think he wanted to put on uh, Blind Patriot because it just seemed like it was a straight-up thrasher. Just a, You know, it just comes in with a wall of guitar and it never lets up. Um and I insisted on putting Ashes to Ashes on there because it was more dynamic and it was um, speaking directly to the issue that the compilation seemed to uh, want to address, you know, so it was nuclear, the nuclear threat and all of that. And so uh, we ended up going with Ashes to Ashes and they put it as the third song on side one on this double album. So you had a thousand bands on this thing but Neon Christ was in such a prime slot on the record that we were certain to get heard by almost any and everyone who got this record or heard the record um, and it just was so important for us and if we got letters from all over the world before that when that peace compilation came out it was almost like floodgates opened in terms of awareness of the band worldwide. And uh, so, you know, and also the, the, the album came with uh, sort of a, a fanzine included in it. Um, and so it was a newsprint style, you know, booklet or book, you know. And every band got a page in the book to do whatever they wanted. You you supplied the artwork and the content for your page, and then they just sort of made sure they, they included it and printed it up into the you know compiled it all for the booklet. And our page looked really cool. You know, Jim was a a, a, a darn good you know sort of graphics artist and 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 paste up guy. You know, and we would. We would sit in his room a lot. A lot of our time, uh, you know, throughout particularly the early days of the group, was spent brainstorming and daydreaming about what you know, what we wanted things to look like and what how we would you know, do this and that. And he was, he was really good at, um, you know, taking 
my thoughts or whatever thoughts we came up with together and, and translating them into these little little art pieces. And that page in that in that book, the for the piece compilation was no different. And uh, so between the song, our the placement of the song on the album, third on third song side one, and our book page, which was, you know, gonna be almost the first thing you saw. I mean as soon as you opened the book, it the the the, the the band pages went in the order that you were on the compilation. So we were one of the earliest songs. We were one of the earliest pages in the booklet. Our page looked cool. It's a high energy live photo, Randy Dito leaping through the air and you know, and then the name looked cool. The name was cool. And then you had this song. You know, it was really dynamic and started with this atmospheric feedback, sort of, you know, Hendrix thing, and then it went into this thrash thing, and then it went into almost kind of this, you know, our bastardized version of like a U2-ish kind of thing, you know, where it kind of, you know, um, marches you out of the song and this kind of, you know. But, yeah, that was... If if there was one song that had to come out at that time, I think that was the, the right one, especially for that record and for that period. You know, we always had plans to issue all four of the songs that were recorded on Labor Day. And we always envisioned the knife that cut so deep being the A side of whatever record. I mean, at the time, I'm sure we envisioned a a seven inch knife that cut so deep on the A side, the other three thrash songs on the B side. And uh, I remember we used to talk about, yeah, I I had this idea it should be on antifreeze green vinyl, you know. I don't know why that was a thing, but it was a thing. And but it never happened. And we even had ads that went out into Maximum Rock and Roll that advertised this record that never came out. So that's how far along we were, at least in our planning. But it didn't happen. And um, you know, it is what it is. You know? Well, and William, that brings up a great point that this was never released. So um where did the idea of the deluxe reissue of everything that you recorded in 1984 come about? Because it's, it's been a while, right? Yeah, it's been a minute, right? Um, yeah, I, I, I just had this idea. Uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate uh, to be in a position where I can, I have the resources to put out records and and do things and have a little bit of light on them you know shed on them that wouldn't wouldn't have been shed on them otherwise and so that immediately puts me in the mind of um settling old scores so to speak and neon christ is always an old score that you know there's always that that nagging feeling like you know as much as we did at the time under those circumstances, as much as we were able to achieve against the odds coming from where we come from, being the age we were and all of that stuff, I feel really fortunate to have gotten to do what we did, but there's always this nagging feeling of like, oh man, but we had so many plans. And for everything we did, there was 10 things that we wanted to do that we didn't get to do. So, you know, this idea came up of like, you know, that music that was recorded, 
that does exist on tape, that does exist in some form or another on records, has not been properly served in the modern era. You know, Neon Christ remains to this day an analog band. We are not a digital band at all. We skipped the whole CD era. We skipped all of the internet music era, the streaming, all of that stuff, downloading this and that. There is no officially released music from Neon Christ on any digital anything. And so the idea to address that came to me, um, you know, a year or so ago. And I thought, I just finally made up my mind, like, it's time. It's just time to do it. Got to deal with this stuff. Got to deal with these old tapes. Figure it out. The first idea was to put out a vinyl thing at 12-inch because we'd never done that and because our music dates from that era. So the first thing should be in the spirit of the era from which we uh, came. And so I had just made up my mind, like, okay, yeah, it's going gonna to happen. I'm going to find a place that can deal with these old tapes and deal with them properly. And right then, I got a message from Greg Anderson from Southern Lord. Have you ever thought about Neon Christ? <laughs> I was like, funny you mention that. And so, you know, decided, you know what? He's, a, he's been a fan for a long time, you know, of whatever I've done since the 80s, you know, and the blast and all that stuff happened. So Neon Christ, stuff that happened after it. So it was like, hey, look, if there's anybody to maybe team up with on this, it would be him. He had, he had done a few years earlier, like 20. 13 or 14 he did the blast reissue it's in my blood and the blood album came out really well uh i got to work dealing with the the tapes you know getting those tapes and we had to create new analog masters it was a whole ordeal in itself but got it done and then uh you know greg's thing you know was uh we i wanted to put the package together but then greg's thing would be they would deliver that package they would they would produce they would do the duplications and the you know and help handle the distro distribution it worked out really well and uh the 1984 compilation i think is um really kind of the the final word on on the material that neon christ has recorded to date you know in terms of the 1984 music the the stuff that gets us the early period up to the beginning of our expansion, our mid-period and, and later stuff. Um, I'm very proud of the package. I'm very proud of the remastering. It is all analog. We kept in the spirit. Uh, there's no digital anything. A lot of people cut vinyl records from digital files. That is not what I wanted to do, and that is not what we did. So very grateful that we were able to get this done in that fashion and that it was as successful as it was, you know, or as it is. I mean, it's still out there. And the Record Store Day, to, to get a feature spot in Record Store Day uh, was really tremendous. I mean, uh, you know, a band like us, you know, maybe to some people we deserve it, but to me it was surprising. And uh, all these years later that people are even still talking about Neon Christ at all. See, that's the thing I think that's key here is that nobody forgot about Neon Christ, even when I tried to. You know what I mean? I mean, I never literally forgot about it, obviously. It's too important. But, you know what I mean? You move on and you leave things behind, right? You jettison things so that you can continue to do what you need to do in the moment. It's just part of life. And I don't spend a lot of time looking back. 
And especially that period is such a formative period, but it's also fraught with a lot of intense emotions. You're going through adolescence, you're growing up, there's so much stuff that happens to you in those years that's like you spend the whole rest of your life trying to process, you know? Even though we left it behind, or I left it behind, whatever, like, people didn't. They kept bootlegging the stuff, they kept listening, they kept finding the records, the original issues, and paying exorbitant amounts of money for them. They kept, uh, you know, covering the songs. They kept whatever, you know, like putting the thing on YouTube, whatever. They, you know, as the new mediums would happen, people kept up with Neon Christ and honored it. And generations came afterward saying we were some sort of influence. And I was flabbergasted by that because we never got to do anything that there's so much that we wanted to do that we didn't get to do, right? We were watching bands like Corrosion and Conformity, COC, our brothers, getting to tour all over the damn place, you know? We were watching Black Flag just do all kinds of crazy stuff, scream, they're going everywhere, they're doing everything, you know, it's like, they were older, they were they had some more resources than we had, and they were, they were getting the thing on, but we didn't get to do that stuff that we wanted, not at the level that we wanted, or that I would have liked, you know? So, there's this feeling of failure, or this feeling of unfinished business and so the fact that despite all that people took the music up and they took the memory of the band up and formed this little legend around it was uh shocking and incredibly gratifying so finally all these years later i felt like it was time to write the love letter back to those people who kept it going all this time and to the band itself to us as those kids and to that whole period and to serve the music properly, you know, to make it sound the very best it could sound. Yeah, it's thrash music. It was recorded under crazy circumstances. But now it sounds as good as it's ever going to be. I feel like we can go forward now into, into posterity long after we're gone. This thing will exist properly. Now, the next thing is to get it onto the streaming services. And that's going to be the project probably for this year but but the analog thing to put it out to have people buy it the record store day it sold out like in a day or two you know that was incredible now we have a new pressing it's almost sold out of of so thousands of units of of 12 inch units of neon christ i mean it's hard to sell thousands of anything physical product now i mean there's you know there's big big bands that struggle to i mean it's kind of incredible what's happened so uh very gratified for it man very grateful for it i think it's interesting that these things that we dreamed about happening you know while we were together as a as an active band you know it it took years to come to fruition but they finally did you know i think back to the show that we did in 2008 when we were looking at doing a documentary and um, we were headlining you know, over like seven or eight bands. And, you know, four of those bands were active, huge touring bands. And you run a risk, you know, of, you know, what's what's it going to do to your legacy if you can't deliver? You know, and how are these people going to respond? And we came out and we did this show, and half those kids weren't even alive when we were around the first, you know, when we were around the first go-round. And they knew the lyrics to the songs because they could find it because of technology. They could find the records on YouTube and stuff. And, you know, we did it and it was amazing. And then, 
you know, fast forward to last summer, you know, not only releasing this record that was beautifully packaged and everything that we ever dreamed about, you know, but then to, you know, do the end store and, you know, get to interact with folks and then to play this show and, you know, to see the response. Because I don't, you know, in my mind, you, you run a risk, especially when you get older, you know, it's like, are we gonna, are we gonna embarrass ourselves as these old guys getting up on stage? But we got up there and we delivered in the way that we always did. And we can look back on that and say, okay, that score is settled. You know, we, we did that and it was good. Well, and that brings a good point. Like the show happened in June, like at the end of the first wave of the pandemic and Chad Radford kind of wrote about it as a seminal moment in Atlanta punk history, because you had the three different bands on the bill up Chuck, Gigi King, and Neon Christ, and you had, um, I don't know, what is this? Somebody said, I would never go to my high school reunion, ever, but that felt like a high school reunion. It felt like a really significant event. Um, where did that idea come from to play? All right, releasing a record is one thing, but how did y'all reach the decision to, we're going to release a record and play a show? Well, as usual, um, it starts out very, very small, and then your mind starts wandering, and it ends up growing into this thing that's just, you know, it takes on a life of its own. And uh, originally, um, because it's record store day, um, and we were so proud to be included in that, and also wanted to honor record stores in whatever way we could for the release, uh, the idea was to do a little in-store somewhere. And what better place than Atlanta? You know, we come from here. And originally it was just going to do a little in-store at Criminal Records. And they have a little setup in there where you can actually, they have a little bandstand in there. And over the years, bands have played shows in there. Um, and so we thought, well, maybe something like that. You know, we can go in and it could be fairly easy. And uh, But then things being what they are with the, the uh, you know, COVID and all of that stuff, it seemed like the store wasn't going to be able to accommodate what we were trying to do, you know. And so uh, after some back and forth and no small amount of dread it was it was the, the realization was undeniable it's like we're going to do this is going to have to be outside because in my mind what i said was there's no way that i'm going to do some kind of a thing where people have to show up and be uptight you know and they have to stand this many feet apart and they got to have this thing on their face and they got to do this and they got to do that and there's going to be people policing them. i think no, no no i'd rather do nothing I'd rather do nothing than do that. That's antithetical to everything that we ever wanted to do or our reason for existing. If we're going to do this, people have to be able to show up and they have to be free and they have to feel free to rock however they, however they want to. You know. So now we're talking about putting on an outdoor show <laughs> in this climate. And uh, so it was a bit of an undertaking, but thank goodness, man, everybody rose to the occasion. Everybody, I mean, Daniel Langford was talking to police districts, and we were doing, there was all this work that happened behind the scenes 
with the venue, with the city, with everything, and managed to pull this this thing off. It was amazing. I mean, people came from all over, and it was, uh, you know, it was the parking lot of the Star Bar was full. It was a big parking lot. The place was jammed, and and folks had such a wonderful time. That's the main thing. People they had a good time. You know, that's that's all you can ever want, you know. And from the beginning of this band, that's all that we ever wanted. And nobody got hurt and nobody you know, it was just you know, and, and the 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 kind of dancing and the, the thrashing, the moshing, the circle, whatever you want to call it, the pit. Um, you know, it was it was inclusive and it was it was friendly and I uh, I I found myself sitting there on the side of the stage, you know, uh, watching uh, Upchuck, and feeling like this is what I dreamed about 40 years ago. Because I'm looking at this crowd and I'm looking at this band on stage and I'm seeing all kinds of people here, all kinds of people here, all enjoying themselves to this high energy music, and I thought, man, this is. You know, if this is the last time that we ever convened as Neon Christ to do anything, this would be a perfect kind of conclusion to our thing, you know, because um, that was really great, you know. And then we got up and did our thing. And as Randy said, you know, you want to be able to deliver. You know, there's no question that you're going to go out there and not be able to deliver. It's simply not an option. We went out and we did our thing, and you know, again, people had a good time, and uh, you know, there, there's, it was, it was, it was uh, documented on, on, on film, on video, and perhaps something will be done with that. I think the 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 unfinished business now uh, revolves around our later period material and around the footage that exists of the band. And the fact that, yes, we have toyed with doing some sort of a documentary on the band for a number of years, and we haven't been able to quite make it work and decide how it should work, but there's a lot of footage. I think I think uh, the remaining work to be done revolves around that, the later period material and the footage that exists, the live audio and live footage that exists, because 2008 was a really good show. I think the June 2021 show was, was quite good. There's a sense of event around both of those shows. Again, in terms of legacy, legacy of the band, these are fitting documents. I'm proud of how we carried ourselves. you know. And I'm hard on this band, and I'm hard on myself. But I like what we did. I like what we did and I, and I, in those, both of those shows. And I think, I think somehow, some way, at least that footage should perhaps be issued. And I'm thinking about how to do that. What best, what's the best way to do it? So Randy, um, this is the part where I tell everyone that you're responsible for the Atlanta punk collection. You and Jimmy donated your materials. It was the first gift to the Rose Library's Atlanta punk collection. So what does it feel like to have those materials as a collector, like you know your stuff you collected, but then also your band preserved in this way and made available. 
Well, I think it's cool. Um, I think my biggest regret is that the archives that I donate to Emory was probably a tenth of the archives that I had and lost. And, um, you know, that's, that's something that really does still cause me a lot of heartburn. It's sort of depressing. But I think in terms of, you know, having a, a place, a holder for this material, I think is tremendous. And I think the idea that uh, a library at Emory University would want, you know, not only my stuff, but to collect um, the Atlanta punk rock archives, I think is significant. You know, it, I think it gives some validity to what we did. You know, um, it, it, I think it gives us legitimacy. Um, but I mean, I was, an on, I was honored to be a part of it. And I'm glad to know that it has a place to exist. And um, my wife is glad that it's not in the house. So <laughs> I know you're not looking for words about you, Randy Gu, but, uh, but I do think it's uh, important that, uh, that someone who comes from our scene is now in the position you're in to, again, help settle old scores. It's just like I'm trying to do in my way, you have done in, in your way. And, um, you know, <clears throat> again, when we think about history and sociology and culture and <clears throat> underground cultures from many periods, I know you have a lot of interest in that, um, and that's a big part of your work. Uh, you know, the fact that Neon Christ made some sort of a mark is, uh, is again, it's gratifying beyond words, really. Um, and so then to, in addition to that, have someone who comes from our scene be in a position to um, form and grow this archive of all sorts of underground cultures, many of which underrepresented and uh, so on, for us to be a part of this this larger undertaking like that is also deeply gratifying. It was it was really nice uh, to come and visit that day. Um, Jim and I came down and and we saw some of the displays. It's a it's a little bit of a trip to be in kind of a museum kind of uh, <laughs> environment. I think I think anyone who's ever f wound up in a situation like that would 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 say the same thing. Like I had no idea this was going to happen. What a trip! Like this is kind of crazy. Um, you know what I mean? Like nobody is doing anything in order to end up in a museum or end up in an archive. But, um, but yes, it's, it's really nice. And again, our, what we were doing when we were first started doing it, it was so looked down upon and, and it was so, it was viewed with such contempt, um, that, uh, yeah, I think vindication is a good word. We feel vindicated i mean i felt vindicated in the 90s when you know our thing took over the world you know what i mean like uh you know all of that stuff that became alternative or whatever and the whole nirvana explosion seattle explosion wouldn't have happened without what we did without punk rock without the you know without our generation of uh, of and the activity that what we did to make that underground such an exciting place you know, um, that this thing would end up having to go mainstream. It would have to. There's no choice at a certain point. It's really nice, really nice uh, to be there. And it is remarkable that, you know, something that we started, you know, the four of us between the ages of 14 and 18, 
you know, in, in a basement, you know, of someone's house. 39 years later, it's, it's relevant and there's still interest and we're having this discussion. You know, there's something remarkable yeah. about that. Absolutely remarkable. My last question is, uh, where can people get 1984? Well, it's in, it's in a lot of stores. Um, <laughs> Maybe. Um, yeah, right. It might be sold out, but, um, but uh, yeah, I, I think the, the distribution on this was, was quite good to retail, so um, it got around to quite a few stores. And, uh, and of course, online, um, the vinyl LPs are uh, southernlord.com's store, uh, and then southernlord Europe, southernlordeu.com. Uh, you, can, you can mail order this thing. Um, while while supplies last, because again we are we are running low, we are running down. So I encourage everyone if you haven't gotten one, or if you haven't gotten one of the latest pressing, which comes in two different color variants, the Coke bottle clear and the black vinyl. I would I would uh, act now. <laughs> act now. All right, William, Randy, thank you very much for doing this. This was great. Oh, thank you. This was a blast. Thank, thank you. you for everything, Randy. Atlanta Intersections is produced by Randy Gu and Nick Twomlo. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor and the legendary band with no name featuring Jimmy Deemer and James Joyce created and performed our theme music. We're grateful for the support of our colleagues in the Rose Library, especially Low Leader Row, Community Outreach Archivist, and Jennifer Gunter King, director of the Rose Library. Special thanks to the Tots Till Death crew, Henry Aaron, General Ulysses S. Grant, Lee Scratch Perry, Jean-Luc Godard, the late Ronnie Spector, Joe Strummer, and Crafts for inspiration. For more information about the Rose Library and our other podcast series, please visit us on the web at rose.library.emory.edu and follow the Rose Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find the Rose Library's podcast on all your favorite podcast feeds.